the first question that Sariputta asked was, is the goal of the spiritual life the purification of virtue? And he was told, no, it isn't. And the second question he asked was, is the goal of the spiritual life the purification of heart and mind? And again he was told, no. But as we heard already, each step is necessary in order to get to the goal. So we will look at each step on the way so that we have a very clear guideline of the direction that we need to take. With a clear guideline, it should be much easier to stay on the path, but it still will present difficulties. But at least we will know, hopefully, what is the path and what is not the path. So it is not for the purification of heart and mind, but it certainly is necessary to have that. Now, what is purification of heart and mind if it is other than purification of virtue? There are many explanations of the Buddha what purification amounts to. And in the case of heart and mind, we're actually confronted with a meditative procedure. Now, you can see that just alone from this exposition, that the meditative procedure is just one step on the way. It isn't the path. It is one step on the path. It's an absolutely essential step. Without any of these steps, the path does not exist. They will remain isolated stabs at the path. But the full path has to be seen in its entirety. So here we have purification of heart and mind as our meditative practice. And we have many obstacles. Obstacles to concentration. Now, these obstacles arise in everyone as distractions. And it's very important to get a good grasp on the distraction, on the nature of the distraction, and also on its um, on its makeup why it arises, and how we can counteract it. We have several antidotes divided into two main aspects. We'll talk about one of them first. First one is called the five spiritual faculties. Now, these five spiritual faculties are also 
factors of enlightenment. And they turn into spiritual powers when we have perfected them. Now, the spiritual faculties and the spiritual powers are ten of the 37 factors of enlightenment. So even the faculties which all of us possess are already considered to be the pathway. When they become powers, of course, then their strength gives us enough impetus to counteract our hindrances. The five spiritual faculties are compared by the Buddha to a team of five horses that are pulling a wagon, a lead horse, and then two pairs. Now, the lead horse can go as fast or as slow as it likes. The others have to follow. However, the pairs have to go at the same speed. If they don't do that, the wagon will topple. Our practice will topple. So we can see from it possibly some indication why this wagon is toppling. The lead horse is mindfulness. Now mindfulness is constantly mentioned by the Buddha as the most significant mental attitude that we could possibly have. The Buddha said, who is mindful will be happy and well all the time. Why is that? He also said, the one way for the purification of beings for the overcoming of pain, grief, and lamentation, for the elimination of dukkha, for entering the noble path, for realizing nibbana, is mindfulness. Well, that's a very strong statement. And it's the only mental attitude and mental faculty that he ever described in this way. It's the yeast that makes the dough rise. We can beat it and punch it as much as we like without mindfulness. It isn't going to happen. Why does it purify beings? Why does it make one well and happy? For the simple reason, it's so simple, it's almost ludicrous to talk about it. it for the simple reason that if we are mindful of the existing action or existing sensation, feeling, or thought. We are an objective observer. We are not identified, and it is impossible to have a problem. We are just observing. We're standing in front of the cage as if we were in the zoo and are watching the antics of the monkey within ourselves. Now, we can't get very perturbed about that, can we? The only trouble is that we are constantly identifying with the monkey. 
And then, of course, we're having problems. Mindfulness is the one way for the purification of beings. It purifies us because it makes it impossible to react either with hate or greed as long as mindfulness is in the mind. Mindfulness is that attitude which is objectively observing and paying attention without judgment. Just paying attention. We also do not have grief, pain or lamentation because if we have the one we can't have the other. We enter the noble path with it because without it we don't even know where the noble path is. It is the one faculty of mind which shows us a way because we can be instructed by our own reactions and then we can find the path. Mindfulness is also called the heart of Buddhist meditation in an excellent book by Venerable Nanaponika, which explains mindfulness from A to Z in all its aspects. We can have as many explanations as we like. If we don't practice it, it's never going to come together. We have to actually do it. As a lead horse or as a lead faculty, it then gives a speed to the rest of our practice. If there is mindfulness and it is well-developed, the practice will be well-developed or vice versa. It concerns watching ourselves under all circumstances. Now here in the course, it's not so difficult. Nobody is supposed to say anything, particularly nothing nasty. And we're not being stressed by worries or by duties and responsibilities. We're just here, which is exactly the way life should be. We're just here. We're here for a while and then we're gone again. However, most people's lives are so complicated that mindfulness is the last thing they're going to think about. The first thing that people usually think about is to be able to comply with the, all the different things which they think are important. Here, all this falls away. We learn mindfulness on the breath, bare attention. Every time a thought arises, we can be aware of the fact that mindfulness has disappeared. However, by then knowing the thought, labeling it, mindfulness on the thought has reappeared. In other words, we have changed our focus. 
Now, this kind of change of focus of mindfulness is essential in daily living. It's counterproductive in meditation, obviously, but in daily living it's necessary. In daily living it's important to be mindful of that which is momentarily prevalent, that which takes pride of place. If we drive a car, it's quite important to be mindful of driving and not mindful of sensations. However, if we are quietly sitting at home and some emotion arises, it's the obvious thing to do to become mindful of that emotion. Now, what does that do to us when we become mindful of an emotion? It means we don't react. We can't do both. We can't be mindful and reactive. We're very fortunate. But we usually don't take advantage of this very fortunate makeup that we consist of. If we are mindful of this emotion, we are the observer of it. And we're observing it arising, and we're observing it being there, and we're observing it disappearing again. If we should, however, in the process of that, start identifying with the emotion, which most people do, we've lost our mindfulness. Then the emotion is mine, I am it, and of course I have to react to it, because it's me, isn't it? But if it's just a monkey in the zoo that's making some sort of antics, swinging from the bars or something, it's just a matter of observation. Now, when we come to that point where we can actually observe ourselves and watching the rising, the remaining, and the disappearing of whatever it may be, emotion or sensation, and particularly, of course, we will be at first concerned with the unpleasant ones, then we have made a lot of headway with mindfulness. And we will find that it's much more difficult to become angry and that our emotions will become much slower to arise, the unpleasant ones. They do not have so much pride of place anymore because they no longer are taken as such a serious and important part of oneself. All they are are emotions. That's what they are. They don't have to be the content of our actions and reactions. At other times, 
it's fruitful to watch the physical body, to watch the movements, to be totally concerned with that attention only. If there is physical work being done, then that is the one that's most important. For instance, Tichnadhan describes it as washing dishes while washing dishes. It's a sentence that he used many, many years ago, and without his permission, I've been using it ever since. It describes the whole rigmarole of our mind. Now, those of you whose duty it is today to wash dishes, check it out for yourself. What are the hands doing and what is the mind doing? Is the mind actually washing dishes? Or is the mind having all sorts of other ideas? When you check that out for yourself, you'll get a grip on mindfulness. You'll know what mindfulness means. When the mind and the body are in two different places at the same time, mindfulness is lost. And then, of course, the mind is perfectly capable of bringing up problems, dislikes, rejections, resistances, upsets, fears, anger, anxiety, and all the rest of those very well-known emotions who make our lives miserable. But if we were to watch washing dishes, digging in the garden, sweeping the floor, cleaning the toilet, if we watch the physical action with total attention because it's the only thing that is existing at that particular moment and is the only thing that has a basic truth to it, none of those other things could possibly arise. So we make a choice where we put our attention. Do we put it on physical action? Do we put it on feeling? Or do we put it on thought projection? For instance, if you're washing dishes, or cutting up carrots, and the mind is very nicely concerned with cutting up carrots, and it's all going very well. And all of a sudden, the mind has a different idea. It says, boring. And you quickly bring it back to cutting up carrots. You have the opportunity to become aware of the fact that the mind strayed. Instead of being attentive to the physical action, you were for a moment attentive to a mental formation. And you brought it back to mindfulness on the physical action. Now, when one actually practices that, it's not boring at all. It's fascinating. 
It's fascinating because one gets a very expanded insight into one's own makeup. One can eventually see oneself in a different light. Not so much as this one heap which is called me, which has so many needs and greeds and which has so many difficulties and which needs to be cared for and looked after. But we can see ourselves as mind and body. First step into insight. It isn't just me. There is a mind which is trying to be mindful and there is a body that the mind is ordering around. And sometimes the body responds very nicely and other times it doesn't. And whenever it doesn't respond very nicely, the mind becomes upset. Why? Because it's lost mindfulness. It didn't pay attention to unpleasant sensation or whatever may have arisen. When we see ourselves as mind ordering body around, we have a first glimpse of absolute truth. Namely, that the mind's in charge and that the body is an unwilling servant. Now, some people can make the body quite a willing servant by training the body well. But to make the mind willing and trained, that's more difficult. And if we only pay attention to the servant over and over again, we have a chaotic household. It's the master that is important in any household and not the servant. Naturally, the servant has to be looked after. The servant has to get everything that's necessary, food and drink and shelter and clothing and uh, some kindness. But if that's the only one that gets the attention and the mind is taken for granted, as it is in most people's lives, then naturally we have chaos. And all we have to do is open up the newspaper and we can read all about chaos. And that's the reason for it. Chaos because body is considered important and mind is taken for granted. Mindfulness changes that around. Mindfulness is in the mind. Mindfulness pays attention. Mindfulness puts first things first. And mindfulness has the wonderful ability to make us stay in the present. To paraphrase Ramdas, to be here now. Whatever is coming up in the meditation as distracting and disturbing thought, and if you've been labeling, labeling it carefully, you will have found 
that most of it is either future or past. It doesn't concern the present. Because what is the present? The present is sitting here solidly and breathing. That's all. That's the whole present. And if we don't have that as our meditation subject, then of course we're in the future or in the past. And that's why watching the breath is called anapanasati. S-A-T-I, sati means mindfulness. Mindfulness of in-breath, out-breath. And that's why mindfulness is the one mental faculty which brings us to the present and keeps us there if we keep mindfulness going. Why should we be in the present? Because there is nothing else. The past is but a dream, usually remembered wrongly. Human memory is notoriously faulty. And the future is a hope and a prayer. Who knows whether it will ever happen? Does anybody have a guarantee that they're going to be alive tomorrow? We're all hoping we will be. But there's no guarantee anywhere. The future is what we plan in order to feel that we have some control over this impermanence, unsubstantiality, and unsatisfactoriness, the three characteristics of the universe. We can't control them. We're subject to them. All we can do is accept them, live with them, and transcend them. That's the path. But meanwhile, mindfulness of this particular moment brings us to life. Because the past is not being alive now. The past is something that happened before when somebody else was alive. It wasn't us. We're not the same we were some time ago. We couldn't possibly be. We never have the same thoughts, same feelings, same sensations. Neither do we have the same body. So whatever is past, happened to somebody in the past. It's very interesting. If, for instance, you have moved away from the place where you were born and haven't returned to it for many decades and then come back and remember Having been a child in that place, can't identify. It's a movie. It's a movie that 
has, of course, interruptions because you can't remember the whole movie, but it's quite an interesting movie. But it's not you. This does not only apply to decades. It applies to every minute. It's all gone. And what about the future? Well, the one who is sitting here thinking about the future is definitely not going to be the one that's going to experience the future. So what's the use thinking about it? Okay, you want to get on an airplane, you've got to make some plans for that. You've got to buy a ticket and tell them you're coming. But that's about it. You don't have to worry about catching the airplane. Totally unimportant. The one who's sitting here thinking about it is one person right this second. And the one who's going to experience whatever it is that one has figured out is a totally different one with nothing but the connection of karmic resultants. That's all. And because we don't see it, we keep on planning the future. And then we're disappointed because the future doesn't work out the way we had it planned. First of all, all expectations bring with them disappointments. They belong together, the two. And secondly, it can't possibly be the way we planned it. Because the one the plan and the actuality are so much apart that they have hardly any connection with each other. If we were instead to be mindful of this particular moment and make this moment count worthwhile and valuable, totally aware and attentive, knowing ourselves in this one moment, the next moment would follow automatically, totally aware, knowing ourselves, moment after moment. And then we would actually experience life rather than thinking about it. As long as we think about life, we have very little connection with reality. Life cannot be thought about. It's an experience. People are looking all over the world for experiences. Just being alive is the greatest experience there is, if we pay attention. That's mindfulness. Paying attention to being alive. What makes us be alive? The breath. So we pay attention to it. Simple, isn't it? Unfortunately, not easy. We need continuous practice and we need determination and we need to recognize that past and future have no bearing on our actual living experience. People think that all those things that happened to them in the past make up their lives now. It depends entirely upon our own reaction to it. 
Whatever we, however we react, that's how our lives are. Mindfulness is something that we have a particularly good chance to practice at this time here, where there are no disruptions and um, other things which take up our time. So again, I like to urge you to use it as much as you can remember. Getting up, going to the door, opening the door, closing the door, sitting down, pulling the chair, eating, putting the dishes away, getting up again, walking to the room, lying down, all physical action, nothing to think about, just being attentive. You will also find that the letting go of the thinking process and substituting it with mindfulness on physical action feels very peaceful and also is very helpful to the meditation practice. Because as long as we're thinking, we're not meditating. And we can really find in ourselves a sense of solidity, a sense of being grounded when we're mindful. That's what it supplies immediately because we are right there. We are not floating off into some distant dream or some into some past regret. We are right here now. The more we become used to practicing, practicing mindfulness in everyday activities, the easier our meditation is. The better our meditation is, the easier it is to practice mindfulness. Catch 22, no other way. They work with each other. But at least we have an idea what to do. For instance, in walking meditation, if you know when you put the foot down and when you lift it, it's mindfulness. Surely, you can know exactly the same thing when you're walking from here to the dining room. You put the foot down and you lift it up again. And you put it down and lift it up again. There's nothing else to think about. It's peaceful, it's grounding, and supportive of meditation. The Buddha considered mindfulness of the body the most important aspect. He said, who is not mindful of the body will not be able to experience the deathless. The deathless is another word for Nibbana. The first of the two teams that have to be balanced is faith and wisdom. They have to be balanced 
in such a way that we do not go overboard on either one. Faith and wisdom can also be called heart and mind. Faith is in the heart, wisdom is in the mind. Now, obviously, that has to balance. If it doesn't balance, we are either over-emotional or over-intellectual. And it's important to realize in oneself which one of these two we need to cultivate more. All of us have both sides to us. It is often claimed that women are more emotional and men are more logical. But that is a wrong statement. What we really look at is that we have two halves in us, that we have the right and the left hemisphere, and that we call the one the female and the other one the male, and we all have it, no matter what sort of body we have. We all have both hemispheres in us, and the left hemisphere controls the right side of the body, and the right hemisphere controls the left side of the body. And the right hemisphere is the one that is considered to be the emotional side and the left side, the one that's the logical intellectual side. Quite apart from these um, scientific explanations, we all know that we have both. We've all been emotional and we've all been intellectual. But maybe we haven't recognized the importance of the balance. Now, faith is sometimes compared by the Buddha to a blind giant. And wisdom is compared to a very sharp-eyed cripple. And this blind giant called faith meets up with the sharp-eyed cripple called wisdom. And the giant says, you know, I'm very strong. I can go anywhere, but I can't see. Now, you're very weak, but you've got very sharp eyes. Come and ride on my shoulders. Together, we'll go far. We have this saying that faith can move mountains, but unfortunately, if it's blind, it doesn't know which mountain needs moving. That's why the Buddha's instructions are to have wisdom riding on the shoulders of faith so that we have a balance of heart and mind. In our Western society, faith has become disreputable. because it has often been abused. Wisdom, or intellect, has been overly praised, particularly because, in many instances, it makes a lot of money. 
it also can bring fame. So in our society, we are very much geared towards knowing and towards gaining more information, towards using our intellect. There's nothing wrong with it if we balance it. We need to expand and cultivate our intellect in order to even understand the profundity of a spiritual teaching. Intelligence is considered to be a virtue. And wisdom has a particular quality. Wisdom is the understood experience. That's all wisdom will ever be. When we have our own experience and have understood it, then wisdom arises. That's where mindfulness, introspection, is invaluable. It won't work without it. But faith is a stepchild in our culture. Unfortunately so. Because most of the time, we don't know what to have faith in. If we've had faith in something, we may have been disappointed already. Or maybe we never had any faith to start out with because we saw other people already being disappointed. And we don't want to commit ourselves. But faith is connected to love. It has as its basic ingredient love. And if we don't have that, our spiritual path doesn't function. Our spiritual path is the closest relationship that we can ever have with anything or anyone. Now just imagine for a moment you have a relationship with another person. And while you understand the other person, you have neither faith nor love in the other person. Well, that relationship is doomed from the beginning, isn't it? And there's no faith in the other person, nor is there any love for the other person. Or maybe you have faith and love for the other person, but you don't understand what's going on. Well, that relationship doesn't have a very good chance either. It may last a little longer, but in the end, it's also going to break apart. With a spiritual path, it's exactly the same thing. You've got to understand it. If you don't understand what's going on, how to do it, where it leads you, what its, uh, what its uh, ingredients are, what its goals are, how can you intelligently pursue it? But if you don't love it, you're not going to stick to it. So what is there to love and have faith in, in a spiritual path such as this one? The first aspect is that we must have enough intelligence to see 
that there fear there here there is something greater than ourselves but something that we can aim for and something that we can commit ourselves to because if we do it will give us a chance to raise our consciousness to raise our level of inner being to a point where the world is no longer so perturbing and disturbing the world remains out there it doesn't change but when we change its impact on us changes immediately and we also know how to protect ourselves from too strong an impact so when we have love for the pathway that we have chosen the strength of a giant arises in the mind coupled with the intellect that knows exactly what needs to be done without that giant strength a spiritual path is much too difficult that's why most people do it now and then it is too difficult without that complete and utter conviction boundless faith and complete love which imparts the strength of a giant to the mind it doesn't mean that the mind is now clear of all obstructions but it has the strength to clear them have to express itself in any outer manifestation it often does but it doesn't have to but it needs to express itself in wholehearted commitment it's like a good marriage if you're married and your commitment is half-hearted it's going to be chaos isn't it it usually is anyway a half-hearted commitment where one person thinks well maybe i made a mistake maybe i should find somebody else or maybe a few years and then we'll see again that type of thing doesn't work in a marriage well it certainly doesn't work in a spiritual path i'll give it a go maybe i'll find something better or maybe i'll find something a little easier or something that doesn't take up so much of my time or that doesn't create uh, back pains or something where i can uh, see some results a little quicker all that kind of commitment produces nothing wholehearted commitment to the marriage to the spiritual path is the way we gain strength with a whole heart our language is very appropriate we do it with a whole heart we don't do it once in a while 
We don't do it when it suits us. We don't do it when there's nothing better to do. We do it because it's the one thing which has taken priority over all the rest of our mental formations. It doesn't mean that we can no longer attend to our duties. There are very few people in the world who have no duties, if any. Duties have to be attended to. But if they are seen as part of the pathway, it's much easier. There's no heaviness in attending to them. They're done with love. A duty which is done with love is not a chore, but it's just a mindful action. Mindful action, which again helps one on the spiritual path. We need all the support systems that we can possibly get. They exist within our own mind. We need the guidelines to find them. We have all these faculties. We have all these abilities. But we very often do not recognize their value, do not recognize their importance, and put so many other things ahead of them that there's no time left for these. The wholehearted commitment means that we have heart and mind engaged in a growth system which will eventually bring maturity to our mind. The maturity of mind is not concerned with the maturity of body or age. There are very young people who have maturer minds than very old people. It has nothing to do with the lengths one has been on this planet. It may have something to do with the lengths of time that we have been reappearing on this planet, but that's conjecture. This maturing of mind means only one thing. The totally mature mind is enlightened. And enlightenment also means only one thing, and not so many others as I have seen them written about and thought about and conjectured about. Enlightenment means complete letting go of all clinging, which has as its root the giving up of the ego illusion. Now, I will talk about that in detail at another time. But this is a pathway. And if we want a mature mind, one that is no longer unsure, uncertain, lacking confidence, lacking strength, then we know what our most important things are to do, our spiritual practice, which means mindfulness, bare attention to ourselves, letting go of the unwholesome, substituting with the wholesome. 
the second of the pair of forces that go together is energy and concentration. I've mentioned these before. If there's too much energy, there's restlessness. And that can be mental energy. And if there's too much concentration, there's sleepiness. Now, that might be worthwhile exploring for a moment. Concentration, which dissolves into sleepiness, is a kind of concentration which is actually trance. And the way to know it, that it has occurred rather than concentration, is that at the end of the meditation, one feels tired and heavy and would like to go to bed. That's a sure sign that it wasn't concentration but trance. It may not be a strong trance condition, nothing like, you know, seeing visions or anything like that. It is just a mind state, which is not sleep, like we do in bed, but it's also not awareness. It's in between. It's an in-between state, which is foggy. While it's happening, it can feel quite restful. But if afterwards there's this tiredness, you can be sure it wasn't concentration. If there has been concentration in the mind, after the meditation is over, we feel alert, awake, energetic. One feels ready to do anything, even though one may not be physically able to do it, the mind feels able to do anything. There's that much energy generated from concentration. This is one of the factors of concentration which must be considered to be of the utmost importance. It brings a regeneration of the mind energy. Now, we use our mind all the time. From morning to night, we think. From night to morning, we dream. We don't give this jewel of a mind a moment's rest. And what happens What has to happen? It gets tired. What else can happen? And so we go to sleep. But it still doesn't get a proper rest. Even though we might not remember our dreams, we know know that everyone is dreaming. So the mind is like a very expensive, very delicate, instrument that we don't have the sense to turn off once in a while but let it keep running constantly and also 
leave it out in the rain where it rusts. We don't oil it. We don't give it any proper care. And then we're surprised that things don't work out very well. If this was an instrument we had bought, we could, of course, trade it in. Try and trade in the mind. The only way we have to work with it and change this undesirable state of affairs is to meditate and to come to the point of concentration where thinking stops. Now, the first moment thinking stops, we are giving the mind its well-deserved rest. Imagine you didn't put this body to bed at night. After two or three days, what kind of condition it has? It couldn't function properly at all. It does need to have a rest. Now, we do this to the mind lifelong. It gets a rest in the meditation by being concentrated and not being requested to think but being requested not to think, it finally can feel at ease. It comes to the point where it has the ability to produce renewed energy, just like the body does. goes to bed at night, goes to sleep, wakes up in the morning and feels quite energetic. Then at night it feels quite tired again. Now here we have that. However, if the mind is not concentrated in meditation, goes into this trance-like state, it does not regenerate energy. In fact, it uses it up more than it would if it were just watching the breath and thinking in between. So if anyone is having that kind of problem, please be very careful of it and immediately if it should start arising, open your eyes. Look at the light. Shake yourself. Anything to start over new. Do not keep it going because it is counterproductive. We lose energy rather than gain it. So every moment of concentration produces energy. But we also need energy to be concentrated. It's always both ways. It's never just one thing and then another. Everything is dependent upon something else. That's why the Buddhist teaching is quite often called the teaching of cause and effect. Everything depends on something else. If we have a great deal of mental energy, which means that the mind is so used to thinking, to being active, that it cannot possibly stay put on the breath, then do what I have already described. Use it for any of the methods of inside meditation. 
which are also mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the thoughts or the emotions, particularly the mindfulness of the body, which I described to you as taking bits and pieces out of the body and looking at them, seeing where me is in there, or as another possibility, using the uh, sensations in the body as the focus of attention, as they are different ones and give the mind a little more um, diversion. So if there is too much activity in the mind, which makes the mind very restless and actually makes one feel one wants to jump up and run away, this is a too much energy mind, then use it for this kind of investigation. Particularly the um, aspects of the body. And there is one other one which I will now mention to you in this uh, sequence of inside investigation. You can investigate the body as to its content of the four primary elements. Now, these four elements are very noticeable in the body, and they are part of whatever exists in a material form in the whole of the universe. So one of the results of this meditation can be that one doesn't feel oneself so separated from the rest of the world. One sees oneself as part and parcel of all that exists because these primary elements are part of all that exists. They are all of the material world. So just as this body is the material world. Now the first one is the earth element. The earth element is that which is solid in us. And it's very easy to be aware of it because we can touch it, we can see it, we can feel it. No problem at all. We can feel the solidity of our sitting position. We can feel the solid part of our seat on the uh, pillow. We can feel the solid arm on the leg. We, solidity is easy to establish. Now, solidity is the one thing which makes it so difficult for us to understand non-self, anatta. And therefore, to see solidity as earth element helps us to also understand non-self, and therefore it is an inside practice. The solidity of ourselves is the same as the solidity of this pillow, the solidity of this. Every material object has that solidity. And while we don't have to go around touching all material objects, we know very well that a tree is solid. We know very well that the earth is solid. We also know that there is solidity even in the water, otherwise we couldn't swim in it, a boat couldn't go over it. There is even solidity in the air, because otherwise the birds couldn't fly in it, nor could the aeroplane stay in it. We 
know all those things by inference. And we know that this solid aspect of ourselves is exactly the same as the solid aspect of all materiality. Now, the way to become aware of that in a meditative procedure is to put one's attention not on body, but on solid. I'm only recommending to do this when the mind does not wish to concentrate on the breath. Because the first aspect is to become concentrated. The second aspect is to gain insight. However, if we don't get concentrated, we've got to do something. So we'll gain insight first. When mind is on solid, it can then reach outward to solid. And if we are getting interested in this, it may actually provide a concentration which can show us unity. Unity in diversity. The unity in diversity is really a meditative understanding. When we see that unity in that immense diversity, then we get a better grasp on absolute truth. The second of the elements, fire, which means temperature. Now, obviously, this body has temperature. We can feel it. Sometimes we're cold, sometimes we're hot, sometimes it's just right. So we don't put, again, put attention on the, uh, the fire element. We put attention on the temperature in the body. It's very easy to feel. We know whether it feels mildly warm or whether it feels a bit cold at one end, like it does right now, or a little bit cold at the other end and fairly warm in the middle or something like that. Now again, if we touch any object at all, it has temperature. This one is cold. This one is medium. Any object at all that we touch, that we could ever get near to, has some sort of temperature. When you go outside, you can touch a tree or a bush and immediately you will feel temperature. So from the inference, because when we're sitting in meditation, we can't walk around touching trees and bushes. From the inference of knowing that, we know that in our meditation, again, we have a temperature in this body which is repeated everywhere. If the sun shines, it's warm. If it goes away, the earth is warm. If the sun goes away, the earth is cold. If there is night and the earth has turned, it's cool. And vice versa, it becomes warmer again. So we know the earth itself has temperature. And when we have earthquakes, there's fire building up inside. So we've got a lot of temperature there. So we can see that this is everywhere to be found, and we can use our... Um, understanding to see how it applies to more things than that. The third aspect is water. Now, water is, of course, liquidity, liquidity, everything that's liquid in us. Say, blood, 
the saliva, the urine, the sweat, the tears. But not only that, although we can't see it nor touch it, we do know that we are approximately 80% water. And the reason for that is that water is the binding element. That's very interesting. If you have flour and you pour water into it, you get dough. That's why we carry around so much water. If we didn't, all our cells would walk around separately. We might have a better understanding of anatta, of non-self, but we'd all look mighty funny. That's why we've got so much water. It's all keeping it together. Now again, if we look at the water element as the binding element, and also as the liquidity within, with which we can become aware, and realize that water is everywhere. Without water, there's death. As long as there's living materiality, there has to be water. And we know it. It's out there. It's in the dew. It's in the rain. It's, uh, it's in the binding element, keeping the cells together. We can infer from that that the actuality of what the scientists know is true for us, namely that there isn't a single solid building block in the whole of the universe. There are only energy particles coming together and falling apart. It's the truth which the Buddha proclaimed two and a half thousand years ago which our scientists have been proclaiming for the last decades, I'm not sure for how long, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And yet, as far as I'm aware, none of those scientists have become enlightened. The reason being that they said it was out there like that, but not in here. But it's the same in here. And this is what we do in meditation. We connect. We connect that which is known to that which is experienced. When we know, and in meditation, now meditative experience, that this body, our energy particles, falling apart and coming together, being held together by the binding element, and that this is true everywhere outside of us, we lose a little bit of our ego illusion. Not all of it, that takes more than that. But we may find that we feel a little more, more connected to everything that exists, a little less alienated, a little less separate, a little less me, more part of it all. <coughs> it's such a small globe. It's really amazing that we don't all feel ourselves to be part of the whole thing. (coughs) One more. Air or wind. Now, air or wind is, of course, the breath. But also, all the wind in the body. And air and wind is the moving element. It moves. Now out there, 
we have wind, and we have air. We couldn't live without air. We depend upon it. We depend upon breath. We depend upon air. If this air is shut off, we'd all die. So everything that's alive is dependent upon air. We are, everything else is. The trees couldn't live without air. The flowers couldn't live. The earth couldn't produce. It would become sterile. So there we have a total connection with what we are and what is outside of us as far as materiality, body, is concerned. Now we do have a very strong identification system with this body. This is me, and I'm short or I'm tall, I'm pretty or I'm ugly, I'm fat or I'm thin, or I'm old or I'm young, and this is all me. And in actuality, it's nothing but earth, fire, water, and air. That's all it is. To investigate that in meditation is very useful, very helpful. For inside, I've given you a, um, a few of the pointers, how insight arises from that. And I'm advocating it when the mind cannot stand still. It will not focus on the breath because it's got too many other things to think about. So instead of thinking about too many other things, put it there where it will produce insight. It may not produce insight the first instance, but it will eventually. <coughs> All right, you can ask some questions if you like. Are they dealt with as? Well, you mean if you remember them in the morning? Well, in what way would you deal with them as like thoughts? Yes, can be done. The Buddha did not have much to do with dreams. He talked about dreams twice. Twice in the whole of his discourses he mentions dreams. Not that he mentioned them. Somebody came to him and mentioned a dream. And the person who mentioned the dream was so disturbed by it and so agitated by it that the Buddha explained the dream. But otherwise he had no, um, there was no teaching about dreams. It's just that those two times he explained what happened. But yes, labeling, that's fine. Labeling and Letting go. Yes. Yes. I have met a number of persons whom I try to explain certain aspects of the way that they feel trapped, and there is an immediate impasse if I use the word trapped. They don't like the idea of a trap, fixed, rigid pattern, getting of this place to that place. 
to call the noble eightfold path something else. Yes, I understand exactly what you're saying. But you know, what I've come to in my 16, or I think it's now 17 years of teaching, if they resist, let them resist. There's nothing to be done. The silly thing is called maga, which means pass, and that's it. <laughs> and if people think, well, that is rigid, um, yes, a path is a definite direction. Certainly. And it doesn't allow for too many uh, side trips. And the less side trips one takes, the better off one is. You know, it's very common that people resist this sort of thing because it goes against our grain. So one of the biggest helps that one can have to enter this path is to have enough dukkha. (laughs) <laughs> if one has enough dukkha one's going to do something <laughs> yes I, I make my living as a computer programmer and I've tried for years to be mindful while I was actually here uh-huh. I sit down I sit on my computer and I think uh, try to be mindful complete the case and then five o'clock I realize I haven't been mindful at all or I learned to just stop being mindful at five o'clock there's no awareness, no outside observer or anything like that. I just get very absorbed in what I'm doing. And I'm wondering if you have any suggestions to help or anything. Well, uh, unfortunately, I don't know how to operate a computer. Well, uh, but my son is a computer programmer. And I have watched him do this. And what I saw on what I assume there is, is absolute mindfulness. Doing it. But you couldn't be doing it if you weren't mindful of what you're doing. I mean, you couldn't possibly do it because you've got to do it correctly. I guess it's like I can't watch myself do it. There's no. Hmm. Now, once in a while, you probably do. Once in a while you probably wake up to that you're watching yourself and then you do it again. No, it's absolute mindfulness because what I'm uh, um, relating it to is, for instance, when I speak to you about the Dhamma, I can't watch myself speaking the Dhamma and yet I've got to be totally mindful, utterly and completely. Otherwise I wouldn't know what I'm saying, right? But yet... Once in a great while, I listen to what I'm saying, you know, once in a moment, and then drop that again. I'm sure you do exactly the same at the computer. Yeah, that's complete mindfulness. Yeah. Complete mindfulness means that you're totally absorbed in what you're doing. Yeah. (laughs) I've watched him do that, my son, and I thought, well, yes, if he doesn't know anything about Buddhism, at least he knows how to be mindful. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else? Yes. I always have a lot of sensation in my face, like this, um, the, the 
the sensations around your face. Yes, that's all right, um, in a way. Is it one sensation that you're using? It's tingling. Is it pleasant? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) it's only in the face? Well, don't do that. Okay. I tell you what you do. Where is it the strongest? In your face. All right. And it is there immediately when you sit down. It's there even when you don't sit down. Okay. When you sit down, you put your attention on that spot where it is the most prominent, then expand it so that you become aware of it in most part of the body, as much as possible. Then stay with that concentration for something like 10, 15 minutes. I presume that you can stay the whole time with it. Yes. Stay with it for 10, 15 minutes, okay? And then switch your attention from the attention on that pleasant sensation to your attention on a pleasant emotion, which you can call inner joy or inner happiness, because you couldn't possibly not have it when you have a pleasant sensation. So you can't just for the rest of your life sit there and watch the pleasant sensation, okay? You've got to keep going. But the pleasant sensation is certainly a very good beginning. So why No, no. No. It's a feeling. Just as your sensation is a, is a feeling, right? This time, this one is physical. Now, first I'd like you to make it big, okay? As big as you can. Now, never mind the breath. We don't worry about the breath at this time. Just get, forget about the breath. Uh, your breath has to be there as long as you're alive, but I don't want you to pay attention to it, okay? So just make it as big as you can. It doesn't matter how big it is, but just bigger than the face, okay? Then stay with it for 10 to 15 minutes, all right? Whatever you think is 10 or 15 minutes, it doesn't matter. And then just as you've had a physical sensation, now you put your attention on what your emotion is like at that time and try try to see whether you can become aware of happiness. And then, if you can, stay with it. Okay? And as you stay with it, try to stay with it at least, um, well, 15 minutes again. Right? And having done that, come and tell me. Okay? I'll tell you the rest. (laughs) Yeah. Sitting is, is almost like the whole thing is just dissolving, 
Mm-hmm. Right. Well, obviously, you have to be breathing on both sides. I mean, sorry. Yes. Yes. Um, well, just stay with that one, which keep brings you the calm. Certainly. But you, I thought you said left side. Oh, I see. You're, you're, you're saying that you're breathing only through one of the nostrils. I don't believe that. It p- depends it's where you put your attention. Put your attention there where you feel the calmness. I don't believe you're only breathing through one nostril. Possibly. But put your attention there where the calmness is. Whether it's more predominant than the other doesn't matter. You can still put your attention there where you feel the calmness. That would be, you know, helpful to get really concentrated. (coughs) Anything else? Well, in a case like that, it will be a good practice to use one of the inside methods rather than allow the mind just to be erratic and go all over the place, but direct it, direct it either to the elements or to the parts of the body, either one of that. And then the mind will become interested and then will stay put. Because that uh, kind of um, just the mind just bringing up uh, thoughts, irrelevant thoughts, is not uh, productive for anything. So directed towards inside. Mm. Oh, well, that's very helpful. One can watch one's anger. Yes, but uh, direct the mind. And also you can direct the mind, of course, towards impermanence of the breath and then look at all the impermanence in whatever happens within. So don't allow the mind to just uh, do what it likes, but direct it towards one of the inside possibilities. All right. We'll say our little verse for the food. Reflecting carefully, I use this food. Not for pleasure, not for indulgence, but only for maintaining this body, 
so that it endures. For keeping it unharmed. For supporting life. So that former feelings of hunger are destroyed. And new feelings from overeating do not arise. Then there will be for me a lack of bodily obstacles and living comfortably. I wish you a nice lunch. <laughs>